This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. And this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Nina Hines, Therapy, That Petrol Emotion, The Fatima Mansions, Whipping Boy, Inter Paradise and loads more. I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode, then please consider subscribing, liking and sharing. Now, in episode 22, we focused on that petrol emotion. We return to Derry for this episode and we focus on jet plane landing. There's a lovely connection back to that petrol emotion because Andrew Ferris, jet plane's guitarist and vocalist, was actually taught to play the guitar by John O'Neill. That's just one of many brilliant stories in this episode. I noticed a few weeks back that Zero for Conduct, Jet Plane Landing's debut album, was after being reissued on vinyl, and it led me to pull out my own CD of the album. I hadn't listened to it in years, and I was just completely blown away all over again. Sometime in 2002, my good buddy Jim Marsh gave me a six-track CD sampler of the album and asked me to review it for his website, Zeitgeist. I've retrieved the review from the Wayback Machine. Nothing online ever truly disappears, does it? Here we go. Humour me. Some bands stumble and fall into obscurity once let loose from the confines of a major label record deal. Others soar and reach new artistic heights. For Jetplane Landing, the latter is undoubtedly the case. The band features two members of Northern Rockers Cuckoo, who were dropped from the roster of Geffen Records. Andrew Ferris and Jamie Burchill have thankfully not let the experience get to them. They've regrouped and retreated to a studio to produce the album Zero for Conduct. Tiny Bombs is evocative of Wowie Zowie era pavement. In a time when pop stars get over 30 hours of primetime television scheduling, every young band should be pinned down and forced to listen to This Is Not Revolution Rock. The refrain of I put it to you, how exploited do you feel? I put it to you, you were not as determined as you once were, is blasted out onto a backdrop of jangling guitars. Summer ends is two and a half minutes of blistering guitar pop. Underground Queen and End of the Night reveal a quieter side of the band, while What the Argument Has Changed owes a nod to Fugazi. On the strength of these tracks, Jetplane Landing are about to soar. Ooh, now I can cringe at some of those lines and my overuse of the word soar in an attempt to get in an air flight reference is just embarrassing. But I hope it does illustrate just how taken I was by Jetplane Landing. The fact remains, I loved Zero for Conduct then and I love it now. Andrew and Jamie were joined in Jetplane by Jamie's brother Rafe on drums and later Carol Doherty joined on second guitar maybe soured by their experience on a major label in Cuckoo, and definitely, I think, taking inspiration from Fugazi and DC Hardcore, Andrew and Jamie went it alone. 
Theirs was a DIY punk post-hardcore work ethic that was absolutely inspirational. Tours of the UK and Ireland were often over 60 dates long. I first saw them live in 2003 and they were just so exciting. They were exhilarating to watch. They were early adopters of the internet and I can remember their website had a resources page for other bands with contact information for radio stations, live promoters, fanzines, really inspirational stuff. Jetplane Landing's albums were released on their own Small Town America Records imprint and eventually the label would go on to release records by countless other artists. When Small Town America closed in 2020, Andrew wrote, A little over 20 years ago, Jamie and I figured out the mechanics of putting out our own records. While we were in his studio making our first album, we needed a name for the tape boxes. Small Town America was born. 20 years and 150 records later, I feel confident in saying that we did what we came to do. So I'm closing Small Town America with pride and a smile. Jetplane Landing released four great albums between 2001 and 2014. Their second album, 2003's Once Like a Spark, is probably more well known than the others, but for me, Zero for Conduct is the one. It packs a punch, a seriously emotional punch. I'm really thrilled to be bringing you this episode. So here we go to Here Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 26, Zero for Conduct by Jetplane Landing. It's my great pleasure to welcome Andrew Ferris and Jamie Burchell. You're both really welcome. In my head, Jetplane Landing, I always called a dairy band. That's not technically true at all, though. Sure, it's not, Andrew? No, we are the... We're the Anglo-Irish agreement of bands, you know. Yeah. I'm from Derry, obviously. Derry's really important, I think, for our story as a band. I mean, Jamie's obviously English. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and Jetplane is as much about British rock music as it is Irish rock music. The potted history would be, I mean, I learned how to play guitar in Derry at the feet of John O'Neill in a guitar club in the Northwest Musicians Collective in 1990. That's what became the Nerve Centre, isn't it? Yeah. You won't know this, Andrew, but that was the basis for where I ended up working in Cork, which was called the Cork Music Resource Centre. Yes. Which was a little uh, a musicians collective yeah. that that was based on what had been done up in Derry with the Northwestern Musicians Collective. And Angela Dorgan would have been, yes. And Angela then took took the Cork Music Resource Centre and eventually that turned into First Musicians Contact. Absolutely. It's so nice to hear about all this connective tissue. Yeah. So Angela was a great friend of Jetplane in the early days and really sponsored me and us and our idea of doing this band you know so from being 13 at 1990 and going into a guitar class that was taught by fucking John O'Neill Sean O'Neill and I hadn't a clue and truthfully I'd gone to the guitar class because I fancied one of the girls who was in the guitar class but she wasn't there it was just me and him in the room 
And he says, so what do you want to learn? I said, I really, I don't know. I didn't really know who he was, embarrassingly. And he says, well, here, this is how you play Rebel Rebel. And that was the first riff. And then the next one was Talk About the Passion by R.E.M. And then the next one, I'd start to learn a bit about this guy. And I said, oh, you know, that petrol emotion. The next one was Swamp. And he really, you know, Jamie talk and I talk about catching a fire, but he really lit a fire in me um, and then walking home with him. And he started lending me records. And the first record was strange one. He gave me, he said, listen to this and you'll never guess what it was, but it was the status quo greatest hits. He said, learn how to play that. And I'm listening. I was like, status quo. What? And he's <laughs> like, shows. learn how to play tight first, Andrew, tight first, tight first. And that was the sound of the undertone. So he loves status quo. And then it was a uh, different kitchen, buzzcocks and strange days by the doors. And then he pulls out the velvet underground record. And it's like, you know, and then you listen and it's like, then you learn how to play Sunday morning. And, and so years later, and I was in a band then, a dairy band called Cuckoo. And we got signed to Geffen um, after a, a like series of auditions and, uh, in the city happened to be, which was a big music festival in Dublin. And we happened to get on the show and we played it and knocked it out of the park. And then we got signed like a lot of bands did post Nirvana in Ireland. And we were caught up in that kind of post grunge thing. And we made a big record with Ed Buller. Swede's guy, wasn't he? Yeah. And he was just off the back of Dogman Star. And I was like, oh, tell us about all this stuff. And we were in a residential studio in Farnham. And we made this album. We brought the album out. No one really cared. But through that, there were some lineup changes. And we put an ad in the NME. How quaint. And then enter Jamie. And Jamie was the last man who rocked up. Audition number eight on the last day. This guy, this big, tall English guy walking down in the sun, clutching his Fender Precision. He probably borrowed it off somebody for that day, Jamie. Yeah, it's not mine. <laughs> I was on a bass player. I just realized looking at ads in the intermediate, there was more ads for bass players. So you go, All right, I don't I don't play guitar anymore. <laughs> you get twice as many of your bass player. It's like another time, you know, like <laughs> adverts, paper. Classified advert in the enemy. It's like I arrived on a steam train. <laughs> I know. We were a, a pre internet band, yeah, but yeah. we were early adopters yeah. of the internet. And that, that became massive for us as a DIY act in jet plane. But, you know, Jamie auditioned and then there were some tours. We were talking about them earlier in Cuckoo as, as Cuckoo fragmented. But on those tours, um, uh, I hope Jamie forgives me, but we did the Heineken roller coaster tour. I don't know if you remember that, if you're talking about anachronistic. I do, yeah, my God. Yeah, Dave Fanning introducing the bands. Imagine that, Dave Fanning getting up and introducing the bands. And then uh, the lineup was... Uh, Cuckoo from Derry, uh, KD, whoever they were from, wherever they were at that time. Could be whoever they were. They were KD. <laughs> there was a, uh, a they were they an ABBA tribute band or something, Jamie? No, no, they were they weren't just an ABBA tribute band. They were an all round disco band. Oh, and they yeah, they closed the night and they were called Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights, and the then, students' favourites. Yeah, and then Co.UK, and they were from the north, and they had their big mm. single, Big Green Bath. Was there, that, that was it. That was the lineup, wasn't it? I, know, was the line I can't remember where we were. I think we were on second. Though. I, remember. I remember thinking Cold Art UK was just the worst name for a band ever. 
we we uh, we concur but sorry if you're uh listening <laughs> i think com. we told yeah dot com it should have but um you missed the boat there lads i think we told them I mean, that to their face mid-90s Derry, like what the hell like Derry's a small town and yet you had you had sheer you had stum mm-hmm. you had cuckoo like mm-hmm. was that like was it a case of the typical thing you hear about where one band gets signed out of a town and suddenly a and R men descend like I mean was it like that or yes. I mean I saw all three of ye I I saw mm. ye plenty of times and I thought mm. you were all great bands but we couldn't believe three bands from Derry had been signed I think yeah well I think uh, we talked about the Northwest Musicians Collective and people like John and Tony Doherty who ended up managing Cuckoo and uh, Pierce Murr who ended up now being the chief executive of the a nerve center and but all these other musicians and uh to us they would have been the rockers you know like heavy metal yeah. uh guys but they were so given of their time and their equipment and that's what the musicians collective was all about there were all dares resources yeah resources there were all dares um i was in a, a band called you know uh, a school band called eq and we got to play shows and it was like 50 pn and everyone you know were paid up members um, there were Battle of the Bands. I mean, like, I remember our band being put out from a Battle of the Bands round by Ash. You know, these guys came in and uh, actually blew everybody away. And, you know, it was like, but everybody in Derry was raging because these out-of-towners. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, you know? um, but that's what it was. That was what it was like. It was just loads of shows. Um, the practice rooms were rubbish, but they were stuffed. Everybody sprinted after school on a Monday afternoon because you had to get there. Because Richard had the book and you had to, you wanted to book the Saturday or the Sunday or whatever to get, you know, practice room number two, because that had the Yamaha combo that didn't electrocute you. And it was fantastic. And everyone was kind of in a band and it really caught a fire. But you mentioned Sheer and you mentioned Stum. Like um, Stum, really, for me growing up, they were my band, you know, as a 14 year old, 15 year old. Incredible, super tight you know, charismatic lead singer, incredible drummer, fantastic, fantastic guitarist, um, Ivan Berthussle, um, just uh, sort of, they they took what Fugazi did and they kind of updated it with like the break beats that Fife Ewing was doing in therapy and all, you know, they were just incredible. And we would watch them every weekend and then they got auditioned by such and such and such and such and signed to Columbia and everyone knew you. And, and then, you know, things happened during that time, early 90s, like Stuart Bailey brought the enemy to Derry and did a whole feature on that. And Andy Cairns was lauding like the North in general. Therapy were big. Therapy were massive. They, and they were incredible and they were so cool. And then they brought bands like Silverfish and people like that through Derry and they like blew us all away. And there was plenty of places uh, for people to play. And there was money in the system at that time, both in the North and the South. Um, but Cuckoo, that band we mentioned earlier, you know, we were auditioned by everyone from Flying Nun Records who came over to Ireland looking for bands to Parlophone. And there was money for demos being made and there's plenty of life in the studios. So I, I guess all of that is to say one thing feeds the other. And um, I think that Jet Plane Landing definitely were beneficiaries from all of that knowledge. And it was the idea really that Jamie and I took to heart, which was, um, this isn't a dark art. We can do all this ourselves. 
Was jet plane landing and small town America, was it as a result of having gone through the major label Geffen deal, coming out the other side of it and going, to hell with that, we'll do it ourselves. I mean, was it as conscious as that or is that just kind of how it happened? Yeah, it, it was it was quite conscious. Uh, it was it was spoken about often, Jamie, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a different experience than you. I mean, I didn't feel as so, I don't think, burnt by any sort of major label sort of experience. But, you know, I know that Cuckoo left well, it, as, when it fell apart with the label a bit more. It was a bit probably a bit more disappointing for you than me. But it seemed possible that we could put a record out ourselves. And somehow, I don't know, when I look back at it now, I think, why do we even think it was possible? In <laughs> lots of ways, but there was this, an arrogance of you for something that we, and, and you knew the mechanisms of how to do it, and I trusted we could do it. So we just threw ourselves into that, and we never really looked around for anyone to put the record out. There was no, we never sent it to anyone. Because your name, Andrew, like, you, you're definitely down as producer for some of the B-sides on that cuckoo stuff, aren't you? as far as I can remember. So you were obviously like learning the craft as you were going along. Yeah, annoying Ed Buller. I remember, so, uh, you know. What does that button do? Oh, definitely. And he was so gracious as well and told, spoken to Jamie and, um, you know, but it's important. Like I've always been like that. Jamie engineered Zero for Conduct and Jamie had spent a long time perfecting the art of home recording. I wish I had it, but um do you remember Jamie Chris Walla from Death Cab for Cutie sent us a letter? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that recently. Strange occurrences that happened around that record. That must be one of the weirder ones. And he, he sent this letter and and he said, oh, you guys have raised the bar of four track recording, you know, or whatever. And we didn't tell him it was on, done on an eight track, but that was amazing. All of that is to say that what I started doing with Ed was just asking questions and wanting the what seemed to me to be costly to be affordable and then there's a studio here it's a great studio still going it's called the blast furnace and um and then we would book that out and then i would copy the things that ed had taught me which like you know drum replacement and strip silencing and all these kinds of techniques that made a record pop made a record a record and then Jamie, as I say, had been home recording for a long time. So when we put those two things together, it was just this idea of like, we're not, we're not just recording for the sake of it. We're making a record. And th the thing that we often talked about in the car, driving from London to Jamie's home studio was this shouldn't touch the sides. And, you know, by that, it was like, how do we transmit exactly what we're feeling and experiencing straight onto this tape um, without anyone telling us any uh, different whether something's good or bad or needs to be engineered a certain way which meant that zero for conduct took an awfully long time to make and that was in bogner regis yes yeah jamie are you from there jamie is that where you're from i wasn't born there but i grew up there yeah so where's that that's it's on the south is it it's in the south coast yeah. it's near brighton i think is it yeah about 45 50 minutes from brighton yeah um, I mean, it put another impossible spin on it because it's the seriously the worst, most uncool place in the entire country. So when you sit down and go, we're going to make an album, they go, where are you going to make it? And you go, Bognor, you just go, <laughs> good luck, lads. <laughs> Don't you know, you know, we didn't tell anyone we were making it in Bognor, just for a start. It's like saying, you know, I'm making it in a tip. No offence, Bognor people don't kill me. Um, but yeah, it was, um, 
it seemed another another layer of impossibility that would be any good. But you know, I think what Andrew was saying was about we we demoed every song, and we listened back. Then we just thought if we could just make the demos ten percent, twenty percent better, we're probably okay. And then so we set about recording the demos ten percent, twenty percent better. And then luckily, Sean, who we call Roscoe, came along and he was working in a big studio in London, and he said he'd mix the record for us. So that extra 10, 20% really came in the mixing phase of the record because it was recorded in the cheapest, smallest garage in Bognor Regis. It was mixed in a top quality studio and that just pushed it into the realms of being played on radio and being reviewed. It was, that made all the difference because if we'd mixed it ourselves, I don't think we would have got there. Why would I listen back to the demos? I think, you know, we needed that 10, 20% and Sean found it in the big studio. Was the plan to shop it around or or was the intention to always set up your own label? The original um, mini disc is called Small Town America Demos. That's what the band was called until a fateful evening where we christened it Jet Plane Landing. Um, and so we were laboring under that moniker for maybe a year and, or and a half. It, was, it felt like, you know, that's what the band or the project could be called. I think we well understood the mechanics of manufacturing and distribution and promotion of a record at that point. We less understood the mechanics of touring because touring had been facilitated for us by promoters, agents, bookers up to that point. So that was the only thing that had fear for us entering into the project. But Jamie took on that role. I think Jamie took on the role, I'm sort of speaking for him here, but of the tour booker, tour manager. And I took on the role of band manager and band promoter and maybe logistician. You know, this was after the recording was made. And then through that together, um, I mean, like Jamie, you know, it took how many months to book the first yeah, tour? And we, were, we, were, like, we were playing anywhere. And I mean, we were playing first on to bands that, you know, we didn't didn't know anything about we just take gigs and i just try and put together a week around the uk and i did we, we didn't have any gaps and that was it and then we did that ourselves for a while but eventually an agent came towards us and i was so pleased because it was an absolute pain to try and book tours <laughs> and to book <laughs> yeah it was hard you know because those tours were all yeah. booked on the telephone nobody nobody knew us i mean why would they give us a show you know i'd be like oh, give us a show because we're good they're like that doesn't matter you don't won't bring anyone i was like we will one day there was a great i'm sure you saw it there was a great thread there before christmas on twitter when frank turner he was mentioning that zero for conduct was getting a reissue and he said that um so yeah he remembered in the early days of million dead um being really inspired by seeing you put together 30-day tours of the UK <laughs> and uh, just thinking, oh, my God, who are these guys? That's just fantastic. Hi, Frank. Frank's a good supporter. He's always been, you know, he, I think he actually genuinely likes the band. That helps. Which is that lovely. helps. <laughs> yeah. I, I was always so impressed with Jamie's itineraries. But that was, you know, I, I, I belabor the point, but imagine posting a CD to a bar with a first name of a promoter on it because the bar manager only knows it's John or it's Emmett or it's Philip or it's Sandy or whoever. And then trying to catch the promoter in between a sound check and the, you know, there's like a sweet spot. Oh, he's not here now. He might be back at quarter to six. And then, and then finally getting the guy on the phone and then trying to close a show. 
And then imagine driving to go and do that show off the back of yeah. that as an arrangement and then hoping that you get paid. I was thinking the other day why that why we did that and and one of the reasons I feel is that we were a little bit older than a lot of the bands. Just that little bit. We'd been through mm. bands ourselves, both both different bands and we and you know, we knew that, you know, you just have to do get out there and do it, you know, do, do these things. And uh, so no one was gonna book the shows for us. So I said I'd book them. I didn't think I could. I did. <laughs> I just booked some shows, kept pestering people, ringing them up when they're having the dinner. Doesn't matter. I just I knew that they listened to the CD, but eventually we get enough shows. And that's the it's the truth. They did. They listened to our little four track uh you know, there's some tracks off um Zero for Conduct and they booked us because they just thought this is you can just tell that the band are gonna be a good night and you know, and we were. And when we showed up we could play, which made mm. a, a you know, which was good. So yeah, it that does helps, help. And, that helps, yeah. Jeremy. And we get and we put on a good show. So and and they, yeah. everywhere we played invited us back. That was the thing, you know. Yeah. So we then we built up a little tour circuit of our own. I got my hands on a six-track sampler of um, Zero oh, yeah. for Conduct back then. I reviewed it for um, a website I was writing for at the time, and I said Tiny Bombs is is evocative of Wowie Zowie era pavement. I mention this is not revolution rock. I, I I go on a bit about that and the lyrics. And then I say summer ends is two and a half minutes of blistering guitar pop. Underground queen and end of the night reveal a quieter side. What the arguments owes and not to Fugazi. So I think I'm I'm hitting kind of signifiers, I suppose, within it. You yeah, know? that's about right. Yeah. And then I got to see ye and I found the flyer. Uh, <laughs> So there's, there you are, one of these, it says here at the back, I used to like the way my old friend Emmett used to write a little blurb about the band. So this says, uh, drop by Geffen, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. The band released their debut album, Zero for Conduct, which has the spiky rift songwriting of Fugazi, television Van Pelt, laps and some Iggy Emo slamming. Great. We really did everything on that record. We, we kept all bases covered just in case. We could move in any direction afterwards. <laughs> That's amazing. That was that the, the 1st of June, 2003, okay? And then, not to embarrass you too much, I digged up the old tour diary that you kept, Andrew, back in the early days. Fair play to you for keeping that going for as long as you did. But here's your thought on the morning after the court gig, right? I didn't think I'd end up doing this at 26, a travel lodge in Cork, bracing myself for a 24-hour journey home in a transit van. But I wouldn't swap this time for the world. My best friends trying to kill each other, trying to help each other, trying to fuck each other up, trying to fuck audiences up, trying, 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 always trying. That's brilliant. Awesome. Okay, there you go. I remember that travel lodge. I don't remember the show. <laughs> you said here earlier on, you said that the show's pretty poorly attended. I don't remember that, actually. You said, but we played one of our tightest sets of the entire mm-hmm. tour. And then you say, this is great. You say, I've really grown to be a lot more comfortable on stage during this tour. I don't try as hard to be interesting between the songs. I guess what I've learnt on this tour throughout the UK and Ireland is that my role in this band is to sing the songs, mm. nothing else. Oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, that Andrew. was something that I was reflecting on recently: is how quickly you went from being guitarist in Cuckoo, and you said, "Well, I'll I'll be the leader of Jet Plane Landing. I'll I'll be the singer." I was like, "Okay," because I didn't want to be it. And uh, 
I was like, but I didn't know whether you'd be able to handle it, but you soon got on with the job of fronting up the band. It made life easy for us because you seemed to take to it really well. That was something that we didn't figure in when we were recording. Obviously, we didn't even know we were a band. So that was a bonus when we got out on the road and you were like, I like this. <laughs> I actually enjoy it. And I like being the center mm. of attention and it's great. Mm. And you, mm. you thrived under that and I could just watch you do it. Mm. And then made, made the rest of the band sit back and go, Ferris is going. Let's, Ferris is going to go mad. Let him go. <laughs> let him go. Build a platform to let him go. And so that built a show up easily from that point, really, live, because we could just mm. let you, we knew that you were going to go for it anyway. So it was, gosh, <laughs> yeah. There's so much to unpack in that, you know, but amazing to hear those words come back at me. Jamie really gave me a voice, I think, that I didn't know that I had. So Jamie gave me, I, had, I think I had cultural confidence, um, but I didn't have um, the cultural confidence and then what we were doing the material was good but i didn't have um the outward confidence to be a spokesperson for what i believed in and um we talked a lot about i remember jamie sent me a, a tape when i was living in Derry. it was betwi betwixt cuckoo and jet plane really and before i migrated over to london the first time and on that tape i wish i had it but it was it was narrated with a beautiful letter but it had Al Green live on it. Okay. It had um, Bad Reputation, the, the track by Thin Lizzy. It had a couple of police deep cuts. Oh. I can't remember the songs, but all of them were about the same thing. It was about what I took from it anyway, it was just about communication. You know, it's if we're going to do something, we need to communicate something. And I think it took us a while, probably three years to work out what those things were. And then in terms of like the band itself and then like growing on that tour in particular or that tour diary, like definitely there was this rigging that the initial three piece, cause it was Jamie and his brother Rafe played drums. And obviously they're so locked in to let me go and try these things out. I never, ever, ever once had my wings clipped. I think I got my wings clipped once by Rafe where I said, let's hear it for my band. And that was at a show in the Water Rats. And I'll never make that mistake again. And he was like, you're not your fucking band. <laughs> like he didn't get Charlie Watted. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that put me right in my box. He was good for that. But Damn straight. But yeah. Even that, like, boom, I'm just telling you this now. And now it's done. And we move on to the next show. Because I was trying stuff out, trying out different personas ways of being and like i remember playing ways of hanging off things i remember playing in edinburgh speaking of hanging off things turning around and seeing you hanging off a beam on mm. your own and the, and the going this is going well and i knew i knew yeah. you've been enjoying yourself and the promoter came up to you afterwards and said, yeah, you put on the show don't you i was like yeah he does doesn't he he hangs off beams anytime give him a beam he's batman and and then that that grew into like you know, later on as we progressed, we got maybe the song got sound got more muscular after Zero for Conduct and a different type of thing where, you know, part of the show became this kind of um, more like a dialogue with the audience and speeches like set to music and like back into other songs and but always, always tight, always like you learn, you learn quick on the road. Like when we, was, we were out and, you know, we're playing like Glasgow and you know, it's, it's dead hard to play end of the night in Glasgow <laughs> without somebody shouting yeah. out on a quiet bit. This should end your night. 
<laughs> you can't yeah. there's no space we just left no space and we just plowed through the set made sure it was kept everybody going the whole show from the beginning to end and we'd mm. be playing short sets so make sure the set goes from beginning to end and that's that was just born from the experience of being on the road and people heckling mm. you and, and the roughness of that you know when we soon soon learned that there isn't much room for subtlety with three-piece band on the road and then and, when Cow, and even, Cow joined obviously yeah. it made life even easier He's, he's a fire even cracker. even as a three piece and with a partisan crowd, it was still hard. Yeah, um, yeah. So I remember playing like in London one time, early days, and uh, a friend of the band, and she was in the audience. And there's a song on Zero for Conduct it's called "Adam's Dream in Technicolor," and it has like this stop and this pregnant pause, and it's all very Ian McKay, and it has like you know, and it comes back in. And it comes back in on the word "sent." You know, it's like, and it's all those letters that you, you know. And there's a pause and it's like sent and then the band come back and it's like a real moment you know it's like ah oh, this is class you know and so the band do the and then right in the back of the audience she goes sent and, like, oh, and everybody's like do we come in on her or do we wait for him and i'm like i don't know just fucking come play. back in yeah. one two three four <laughs> three just go for it so you know there's no you can you can set it you can set it up any way you yeah. want but that's that's the way for you what was paying for it at the time? You're in the early noughties mm. here. You're, I suppose the second album came, was it 03, 04? Mm. Were you selling enough CDs to keep it on the road? Was it T-shirts? I mean, were you all doing day jobs when you weren't touring? How were you keeping it going? Yeah. All of the above, really. Um, the yeah. best way to, yeah. I'll describe it and Jamie will jump in because Jamie handled like on the tour, the Aitai, as we used to call it, Mr. Birchill's itinerary. But really, everything that was sold went back in the petrol tank and and then to pay for the travel lodge and we kept going. There was never really much money, if any money, to split. And even in those days, we were trying to find money to pay for video directors to make a video or there was a press person to pay to plug a single or there was always there was always a bill. Yeah, I suppose live the band live the band existed financially okay. Because we were playing, we were selling T-shirts, we were getting paid to play. So often we'd sell places out. Uh, Recording-wise, there was no money coming back to the band at all. So we, 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 our records didn't make any money for us at all. So, um, the, so there was a tension there that obviously maybe that explains some of the length of our tours <laughs> because that was one time when the band was functioning and we'd actually leave the tour with money in the bank which, you know, was amazing for us. We'd have to stop off at, like, Norwich and deposit money because <laughs> we were carrying around the grand. <laughs> it was like, we better get rid of it. And it, so we were making money on tour. But, yeah, as, as recording goes and the records are going, nothing was coming back to the band. And so the, functionally, our lives were very strange because, you know, we all had flats and partners and we didn't have any money. So that was probably why the band, and lots of, I've been thinking about this recently, a lot of why the band sort of ground slowly, because we, there wasn't a functional uh, daily experience for the band to keep going and go, I'm going to rehearsal now. And when I'm going to rehearsal, I'm paying for the money to go to rehearsal. Where, you know, so when we were on the road, which we were on the road a lot, there was the band. And it's like, yeah, this makes sense. Because we would turn to each other and go, yeah, we, we just made yeah. 600 quid tonight. Yay. <laughs> and it's like, wow, we've sold 50 yeah. t-shirts. And they're you know, and everything made sense on the road to the banks. It felt like it, and then it sounds that sounds a bit sort of capitalist and like money makes sense of it, but it it was more that it was functioning really well as a as a unit. 
and it made yeah. sense to everyone else because you could explain to someone go why are you in a band and they go well, yeah but well, you know how does it keep going we, well it keeps going like this because we get paid when we're touring and and we make money so it's like it's just that sort of uh, when people ask you the question how does it work you go, yeah it works like this and is that how kind of putting out releases for other other bands kind of just started happening was it was it was it other bands coming to you saying how how do you survive how do you make it work for you i mean is that what happened maybe speaking to the wrong person about like how to <laughs> uh make a record label work <laughs> but i did try for uh you know a long time i think what happened through like releasing other records just like a love for music really and we saw a lot of great bands um, come and support us. Uh, it was just like, well, can I have a record? Oh, we don't have one. You know, we've got this CD. And um, and it went on from that, really. I think the first thing I did was a compilation, public service broadcast. And then that felt like a, a thing. And then that grew into like more standardized releases. And uh, through Jetplane, we were able to curry favor with a distribution company called Vital. And then they gave us a P&D deal, a pressing and distribution deal to do the second Jetplane record. But it's an interesting story that in between Zero for Conduct and the second album, because by every metric, Zero for Conduct did very well. So this was a record recorded by us in a garage in Bognor Regis that was, got played on Radio 1 and on MTV2, reviewed very well. And so between the this first record and the second record, we were approached by Southern and we were offered a record deal um, from them. And that became a really interesting discussion because what that would have done for us at that time was unlocked Europe as a touring entity, which we weren't able to do on our own. And Jamie wasn't able to do like with a phone, but we got some sort of too good legal advice, I would say there is such a thing as getting legal advice that's too good and we decided not to go with southern um and i was reflecting on this recently um it would have been a very very different career for us it might have been a shorter career <laughs> but it would have been a different one for that moment in time and so the choice to continue to do things ourselves brought all these tremendous things that happened but possibly we would have been able to link into a, a larger financial infrastructure had we signed with a record label um, at that time. It was mad because they were a label that we we loved and would you know and we would have most wanted to sign to, and then they came towards us, and it, we kind of didn't make it happen. <laughs> I was like, oh, what do we do? And it's like looking back at it, that's the as of a regret, obviously. Yeah, there you go. Paul, it's possible that we would have found it hard to work with anybody <laughs> because we'd been doing everything on our own. I think what happened as well was that John Loder died while the deal was going through and John was the person that said he wanted to sign us. So, you know, sadly he passed away and then the deal just drifted and we moved on. We just carried on because we 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 were going to put once like a spark out ourselves anyway. So it was like we didn't need a label. So we didn't look for anybody else. And, they, and, and our, our label that we liked and was talking about had come towards us. And so we weren't going to go Okay, let's try and find someone else now. So that was it. And back to Small Town America and we released it ourselves. Yeah. And I think one of the, the good things about owning all your own masters is that one owns all your own masters. <laughs> and it makes it easier, as we've done now, to uh, repurpose the catalog and keep it in print through big, scary monsters. So, like, it made it all very, very easy, you know, having that kind of totalitarian grip 
on everything that we did and it's all there in terms of every single thing we've ever recorded all the artwork last summer i think big scary monsters reached out and said just you know this is out of print it's out of print because i closed down small town america and so everything because all the bands own all their masters everything was returned to all the artists that had worked um with the label and so whilst that was cathartic it was you know a matter of waiting to get the right partner to put together everything again but whenever the uh, test pressings came back for the vinyl it had been a long time listening through to the whole piece as a piece of work it was very emotional um for me uh and it, it communicated a lot uh to me over the two sides um i i i think it really I don't think it touches the sides. I think it's like, it's pretty unfettered. It's like, you know, we're, we're channeling something. Um, and it, it was lovely to hear it across two sides. I think it works well as a, a side A and side B. More so, I would say, than some of our other records where we weren't thinking in th that context at that time. Uh, but definitely we're in Zero for Conduct. We were thinking about it as a, a record of two halves. What's going to kick off side B, you know, all that. Yeah, I was I was going through that recently as well, and how we sequenced it, and we we were writing in sequence mm. at, at points, which we would do later on our backlash cop. But uh, yeah, we'd go well, what follows what would be a good song to follow, Tiny Bombs, and then you wrote Revolution Rock, and it was like yeah, that's a good number too. And there was a there was a structure that we were forming to, on the record with the writing process, which was unusual because most people just write eleven songs and then structure it, but we didn't do it that way. We were writing eleven songs to fit together. And like you, when the vinyl came, I had to listen to it to check it out. It's the first time I've listened to the album in total for a long while. It was nice hearing it again off my little record player. And it was pleasant. I was surprised. I thought we, my main emotion was we should have been a lot more cocky about it at the time. <laughs> but we weren't really. We were kind of full of um, imposter syndrome and it can't be any good. We made it in Bognor Regis on night track. It can't be any good. Why, why did it get in all this attention? It must be, must be madness. It must be just luck. As much as I loved Revolution Rock, I always thought that Summer Ends, if Zero for Conduct had been an American album on a label with a load of money, like Summer Ends would have been a hit. Massively. Massively. Yeah. I always think... If we should it should be on a, a Coke advert or a Pepsi advert, summer end, shouldn't it? It's like that, that's uh, my pension there. <laughs> As I was, come on, Pepsi, come on, Coke, find out, find it somewhere. Yeah, it'd be perfect. All surfers, all surfers mm. on the beach. It, it, like, um, again, it's track four, I think, summer ends after Underground Queen, and um, that's right, yeah, uh, picking it up the, again, uh, pick it up again, yeah. And I remember that, and it, it, it starts with Rafe plays a great drum fill, you know, and you know i was i remember i was in london and my girl then girlfriend now wife's um uh sitting on the edge of her single bed and uh jamie would come round. and it was in tufnell park in the north of london and you would come around pretty much most afternoons when they were all out at work um right. yeah the jobless and um <laughs> the when we were getting into this idea, this narrative arc across, you know, the songs, what do we need? What do we need? What do we need? And I was like, we need some like freak scene by Dinosaur Jr. You know, it needs to be like kick ass, like Jay mm. Mascus. That's my attempt at trying to be like Jay Mascus. Summer Ends has everything apart from the pentatonic guitar solo. Yeah, I, rem I, remember I remember going to have to listen, going to have to listen to Jay Mascus because I didn't know what he sounded like. I was like, all right, he's going to do a Jay Mascus one. I better check him out. 
<laughs> and then you did, and I was like, yeah, it does sound like a bit, but you know, I think we're going to get away with it. Oh, there's a lot of ripping off. There's a lot of ripping there's off. There's a lot of. <laughs> well, we used, to, we used to call it, we had a name, didn't we? It wasn't ripping off. It would be, be a lot like of lifting. Um, lifting. A lot lifting. of lifting. lifting. Yeah. We'd, lift, you know, we'd lift an idea think, off people. I think that's allowed. Yeah, it wasn't stealing. Stealing allowed. from our favourite thieves. Everyone does it, for God's sake. <laughs> and I think that's why, that's why that record enters the continuum you know, of music that was made by bands like us of that time, you know, because first and foremost, Jamie and I just love records and we love records that are put together really well. So I think we're enthralled a, a wee bit to records, but the records we were really enthralled to were Amy Mann's first record, the Bell and Sebastian album that was out at that time, and then things yeah. like Pink Moon and stuff. But all those records are comparable in that they have this kind of... um you know, singular story that's sort of, Vision. yeah, that's flowing through them all. And and yeah. lots of records get made like that now. I'm not saying that they don't, um, but it is different now where, you know, you can channel hop, but we wanted to make something that, and I think this is why it enters this kind of, as I say, a continuum of, it feels very comfortable and familiar at the same time. Well, guys, second and third time out then, was it getting harder to kind of keep the show on the road? There was a few years yeah, then again, I think, before number three. And was that just getting older, having to... Life, yeah. It was life and finances, really. The second album yeah. couldn't have gone better, really, in lots of ways. In fact, as we're gearing up now to it coming out on vinyl on Big Scary Monsters, it's like that's the one that everybody yeah. is going mad for. It's like it's our, it's our biggest record in terms of, you know, people the saying they love it. And it's like it's an yeah. easy it's an easy sell for us, but compared to Zero for Conduct, I mean, we've had to sort of go remember this one, lads, <laughs> because everyone's wants like a Sparkheads, and they're just like they can't wait for it. And vinyl, it's first time on vinyl for it, um, and they're just like everyone's looking forward to it. And it's and yeah, I, I actually prefer Zero for Conduct as a record myself, but I mean, I I could see why once like a spark went because it, it's quite straightforward and quite you know it's all there. There's no, you know, there's not much, there's not a subtlety that there is on Zero for Conduct. We mm. we made sure there wasn't, and it made life easy on the so things on the road for your question of like putting a, the show out. The show got easier right. to put out actually by the last tour that we did there with Don't Try. You know, people are singing every word. It's like it's mad. You know, our London show that that was just like odd for us. There was like loads and loads mm. of people that were so into the band. And who would have thought when we first played in London, mm. Andrew, when we supported Clearshot mm. and we were first on, I think. And, you know, who would have thought that we'd play in London, sell out and with like guys that were obviously yeah. followed the band for mm. years and knew every word from every yeah, album. And, and, and it did. It, it elongates odd, between you know. the four records, you know, so like the gaps in between them get bigger. And that was as a result because mm. that baseline, you know, that's that fundamental of you know, no, no revenue stream coming back to be, to allow us to do it faster. But why, well, you know, I don't know, rose tinted glasses. My favorite records are third record because it had more time and gestation, just in terms of, I just think that was the only know, one we actually paid for. Yeah, to make. And, All the know, others we made so, for free. Uh, Once like a spark, <laughs> our second record, we graduated from Jamie's the shed, the shed to the, the house beside, you know, yeah. uh, and so yeah, that sounds slightly bigger because we recorded it in the living room <laughs> and and Roscoe, who mixed it, came down and engineered it and, and, and then he mixed it at home. Recorded it on a computer and yeah. we had more tracks. We, we had like 24 tracks and it was like, not we, we moved from eight yeah. and there was freedom yeah. to overdub. And yeah, the sonically yeah. things went 
that way things went up you know that happened really yeah. throughout our recording career I and then Cahar obviously joined the band you know in the second record and we became more muscular and mm. he brought yeah. all of that and he wrote mm. a lot of the riffs on that second record and he you know our our writing partnership mm. had shifted and changed a lot by then we didn't no. really write that much together on that second album it was mainly you and Kaha, but my involvement on the writing on the second album was a lot less than the first album. The first album is complete collaboration between me and you on every mm. track. We worked on some part of it together. Mm. Definitely the writing structure changed totally. And and all mm. the albums are different after that as well. But Kaha's influence can't be played down on to mm. joining the band and how we changed. It was enormous. I mean, he's he's a very good guitarist and and, and a very... Fierce writer of mm. riffs, unbelievable. Like he's the riff machine, and you ch- we had him up in Tufnell Park, mm. chained to a four-track <laughs> recorder for about a year, <laughs> and, and so he wasn't allowed to leave or get a job or do anything. <laughs> he might yeah, have did a bit, he did a bit of temping, I think, but that was it. I've got demo tapes of riffs that didn't even get used. Did running the label get in the way of the band? I think the label, after the band finished, like being a, a touring kind of. After Backlash Cop came out, that's STA 037. And then um, it goes relatively quickly then if you plotted it out between 038 up to 150. Um, So I came back to Derry and really tried to make a go of like running a label and like being the Derry polyvinyl or, you know, the Derry Discord or whatever. And through everything I had into doing that. I think that uh, I say that because between those catalog numbers, I really didn't write myself and it's only since um uh folding the label and you know uh and the work that that took that i've just recaptured my own creativity and stuff so i think yes i think in terms of jet plane landing what i would say maybe jamie would have a slightly different opinion i think that there was a lot of admin that we all had to undertake like you mentioned the tour diaries earlier, it just reminds me of we do you remember we went on tour with Buffy Clyro, Jamie? And they were they were blowing up. Mm-hmm, and I we do. would go back into the dressing room, you know, and sort of like there were like plumes of plumes. And so <laughs> after sound check, I remember one time and I had this laptop and it was hooked up to a modem on my mobile phone and I'm on Dreamweaver and I'm updating the website and I'm touch typing. And I remember Simon said to, I think it was Rafe, he went, is he for fucking real? And because I was talking to somebody and I was typing, you know, up a tour diary you know, entry you know, for the website for the, live. Yeah. And, and they went, no, no, he, he, he can do that. You know, it's like, he's like, oh, that's fucking bullshit or whatever. And I was like, no, it's like here. And then he came over to, the, and they all crowded around the screen and I was typing and doing a thing. So I think. I became a bit of a desk jockey, but I loved that. It was, that was really important for me. It was part of my role in the band. We had a discussion board and, you know, we keep the website up to date and we were doing mail outs and, you know, all those mechanics of that, I think were really informative for us as a, as a group. So to answer your question, eventually, I think it did hold us back, but I think it was also part of us and it was certainly part of me, you know? yeah 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 i think it was like again that being slightly older and being on tour it's like we weren't there to have fun <laughs> we were it was our work i think i've often i was reflecting on this recently some bands asked to go on tour like biffy and 100 reasons and seafood and i think they expected us to be a different uh beast than when we arrived because 
we were not about fun. We were all going to work really hard and and we worked a show. We made sure our show was good, but then there was a whole night for us. If we didn't, that wasn't the end. Sell we'd some go out t-shirts. and meet people. Yeah. We'd be at the merch table. Yeah, we'd talk to, and we'd be, and th- 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 do you know what? Jetplane stole so many fans. And so no, so many people came towards us from the support slots. We were a nightmare to book as a support. I, I would have avoided us because we were there. We were there to blow them off the stage and steal as many people as we could every single night. And we tried. Yeah. And it was like, you know, there are all these unbaked rules, but people would write to the band, Paul, you know, and, you know, like I remember mums and dads saying, oh, my kid, you know, but they can't get in because it's too young. Rafe, Jamie's brother, always made a point of like, bringing those kids in and then let them up on the stage and play the kit and everything, you know, forget about the sound check, let them, you know, let them see the sound check, do all that. And he brought that sort of familial pastoral kind of thing. That'll be remembered forever by those people, you know? Absolutely. And that was so important. And that wasn't our natural state. I'm speaking for Jamie here, but we were less like that, but we're happy to sort of like, you know, but what Jamie always said is that no matter what Ferris, no matter what, as soon as the doors open, you're standing behind the t-shirts yeah. though. Cause that's when people have money, right? They've got 20 quid, a crisp 20 as they walk through the door. It's that or a few pints, isn't it? Hi. And so if you're the support band and you're there, you say, well, I might as well buy this guy's T-shirt, you know, and I never had to break the stage down or pack up, you know, for lots of reasons. They said I was a bit of a lummox, but we won't go there. But it was more, it was like, salesman, get down, go through the crowd straight, you know, before anybody leaves straight through the crowd, you know, Hmm. so we had all of these kind of techniques, but Jamie is right we were the world's worst support band because there was a, a deconstruction that happened in the van after you know, shows. And it was like, they did this. We're going to do this. We're going to fuck these boys up. <laughs> like, can you imagine? And I was like, and that's horrendous because you're supposed to be different. It's really on the, there's a hierarchy on tour, isn't there? All the bands supposed to look, get on. It's, it's like, well, not say we didn't get on. But we didn't really go in there in the hierarchy of like, we're going to be bow down and I don't know. I felt like we thought we should be headlining. <laughs> arrogance of youth. Yeah, I remember one show and it was in Glasgow and I was on that Buffy tour and we're yeah. playing and, you know, you're in the, you know, you're in the belly of the beast there if you're supporting Buffy in Glasgow mm. and it's sold out. And I remember Cahar climbing up on the stack. You know, oh yeah. I remember that night. Yeah. And, he, and he jumps off. And he's like, it's the university, and, I think. Yeah. It's the university, and Cahar's yeah. very acrobatic at the best of times, and you know, like probably threw his guitar in there and caught it on the way down, and whatever. Oh, you know, everybody going bananas, and <laughs> like good show, ha- good hands in the air, and I was like, oh, good night, Glasgow. And that's fine. Buffy Clyro come out, and God bless him, and whatever Simon did, and I didn't see it. You know, quite early into the set, climbs up on something, jumps off, breaks his leg. So. <laughs> Kind of top us. It's like, it's, it's like the old joke, setting loot, setting uh, fire to the piano job, isn't it? Follow that. Kaha <laughs> said, follow that. Kaha didn't break his leg. Though. He's got stronger legs than Biffy Clyro. I have made more money than us, but we got stronger legs. <laughs> All them dairy legs, you know. Um, but that was it, right? Because it was a competition, you know. And, um, you know, back to that tour diary and find your voice and being more confident. There was like rigging that was constantly being built, this kind of infrastructural combat. Um, it was like music as combat and always trying to um, do better with very little. I, I think that's our story, really, Jamie, isn't it? You know, it's it like is. it's like we we got much more than this, you know, the sum of our component parts. And that included yeah, so, money. 
you know? sometimes people say like um you think you should have had more like i had the opposite i was like wow we got all these things with nothing we recorded three of our albums for free without paying for them and we recorded our first album in a garage and it got played on radio one so it's like you know there's millions of people make records and home recordings that and i was one of them before jet plane landing that nobody ever hears and you know and nobody ever cares about i remember this is that feeling i had the other day was when i was thinking about people singing along to your songs i've played in london with various bands for years before cuckoo or jet plane landing where you're not even wanted <laughs> even the promoter doesn't want you there no one wants you there you, you're not certain why you're there and you play your show to nobody and you go home. And that's that's the life of a band, really. It's the greatest. We've, great, we've done greatest, that for years, yeah. haven't we? We've done that for years. That's between... the life of, of nine out of ten bands, really, yeah. Jamie. Isn't because it? we've yeah, because we've done that for years. When something good came along, God did we appreciate it. God, you know, we were like, Wow, mm. people are, like someone is in an audience knows one of our songs. And that happened pretty quickly, didn't it, Andrew? We we were playing in London, and like I remember playing in like say East London, you know, um, somewhere and you know somewhere hipster, and there was like kids there that knew the songs. I was like, wow, what's happening? What's I happening? used to use I used to use people in the front row as prompts because if I forget the words, I was like, what is it again? They're like, you know, you know, give me give me the line, <laughs> and then we're away. That's a pinch me moment, though, Andrew, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's the greatest gift. It's, it, it's like all of the things that you can say, all the things that you want to come true. But more than that, there was something that we were trying to communicate in the songs, uh, the lyrics on Zero for Conduct and in Once Like a Spark, all the records. Um, I think we become more metaphorical as, you know, as the records go on and there's more abstraction. But definitely on those first two records, it was like, very unbridled emotion to have people react to that and sing stuff back to you um is is the greatest gift it's just it's it's glorious the lyrics, lyrics on zero for combat were worked on really hard yes really hard i mean as hard as we'd ever worked on anything and lyrically yeah um, because we because we was our first statement out there we, every track was rewritten loads of times yes and there was many sets of lyrics that didn't get used and mm. We probably didn't work as hard on Once Like a Spark on the lyrics, but um, it was more natural. They came a bit quicker. For me, it's not the album that was done on the big label with the big producer in the residential studio. and But yet somehow it's the experience that was taken from that that led to working in a shed by yourselves with no money that creates this other body of work that is the one that uh, that's being reissued. You know, it's fantastic. Well, what is a record? I, you're right, because a, a record for us, for Jamie and I was, you know, here's this person who I happened to meet through this weird twist of fate, you know, last audition. And he said to me, this is the stuff I'm into. Jamie's slightly older than me. And I needed his arm around my shoulder. And he was like, you've got this kid. It's like, I don't even know what it is we're doing, but, you know, it feels right. And I just took that and ran with it. And every time I threw him the ball on zero for conduct, he threw it back harder. Write the middle eight again. Write it again. That word it's like, sucks. It's, it's like I found a demo to Tiny Bombs the other day when I was listening back. It's more or less identical to the record. So we're playing Tiny Bombs to our friends and they're going, that's good. And it's like, that's the first thing we've recorded. That bodes like, well. You know, there's oh, everything else I've recorded. 
Yeah, everything else I've recorded before this, no one wanted to hear. And all, all our friends are going, play that one again. And it's like, oh, Lord, something's going on here. And so there's an alchemy between us that, that we're putting in, into the songs, which is working. And yeah, I, I think the age thing is something. I'm a bit older than you, and you were a bit younger than me. So I was like, yeah, I can bring my mean age down a bit by hanging around you. Yeah, and there's like, you know, the six, seven years of difference is an epoch, really, when yeah. it comes to like, yeah, when you're that the, age, yeah. you know, at, at that age, right? And it's like the records that Jamie, you know, was bringing to me and that I was bringing back to him because what we were knocking around was like, well, this is what I think is good about music. And there was stuff that was breaking then, you know, it was like mm. mid Midwestern emo was coming, you know, the Savvy Five were just brought out Rome written upside down and at the drive-in, you know, we're just about to release relationship at command. So all of these things were in the air and, you know, I yeah, was, you were finding them and playing them to me and I was buzzing off them. Yeah. And you, you, you know, I might, I definitely had a more sort of like classical rock background, but mm. as soon as I start hearing these newer records, I'm like, well, this, this needs to come in as well. Yes. What we were doing and that alchemy was the, the, the blend between my stuckest old vinyl collection and your new, you were listening to stuff and going, I've just done this on John Peel. What do you think of it? I was like, it's good. You were like, yeah. the laps. Oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I have to talk about Cork for just a second because Cork, as you say, gave rise to oh, that Emmett character, Green, Emmett. Yeah, Emmett. But Jamie got in touch with him, booked the show, and we went down. And um, I said, oh, boys, oh, rock bands and stuff. Last big uh, night. I booked wasn't that long ago. It was Shellac. Have you heard them? I was like, oh yeah, you're class, eh? brilliant, Steve. I say, oh, brilliant. Ah, sure. You know, your man tried to get in, tried to get in on the guest list. Your man Rosendale, Gavin Rosendale out of Bush, and we're all sitting around, <laughs> right? Okay. And he says, because he he knows him, doesn't he? He knows him. And we're like, yeah, that's like because Steve Albini produced, and it's like, you know. And he says, and I. I let him in anyway for free. I let him in. I, you know, didn't want to bother the band. Let him in for free. I can tell you now, Emmett's never left anyone in for free. <laughs> but the the punchline was, uh, he goes, I let him in for free because the whole time your one Gwen Stefani was giving me the eye. <laughs> we're, like, we're we're all we're all looking at Emmett, looking at each other, and we're going so. Multi-million heartthrob rock star <laughs> Gavin Rosden with it could have been a very, very different world, couldn't it? If it, <laughs> if it had run off with Gwen Stefani. That that shellac tour, I they played down in Lep, uh, in Connolly's of Lep down in West Cork, and uh, the, you know there's a lovely little balcony. And uh, when they did the Q&A and Albini, you know, Albini went, right, you know, has anyone got any questions? A girl in the balcony who could have been no more than 14 or 15, just a local girl in to see who this band were. And she just shouted out, have you got any tapes? <laughs> <laughs> you got any oh, it was fantastic. It was <laughs> fantastic. It's brilliant. I was like, we came off stage. You no, know, here all like Andrew, um, you know, finding his voice and writing tour diaries and, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to be the next fucking Ian McKay and our I don't know, was it our first show or second show? It was in the Nerve Centre in Derry, Jamie? Was it our second show? Early doors, early doors. It was, there, it was like really early anyway, and walk off the stage, and this Gerd comes up to me, and, you know, I'm like, oh, Gerd's coming up to me after the show, and she says, uh, do you like um, the Van Pelt? And I was like, yeah, yeah, do you actually? So you can tell. 
<laughs> I love to, the best thing is anybody you lifted that, that too Andrew the, you know, that love the bands <laughs> the people that love the bands they tell you they tell you on the road you know if you if you've lifted something they you they're, if they're a fan of the band they're yeah. going to come up and say we heard that we heard you you lifted that bit there. you're not going to get away with anything no, in this you world. get away with nothing it's brilliant and <laughs> the other time we were in Cork was when we played the place where Cahar got electrocuted and it was in uh, Myrtleville do you know where that is so it's the Pine Lodge Pine Lodge in Myrtleville yeah out by the sea beautiful lovely place spot, lovely spot we went back twice it was so nice second time Cahar got the electric shock yeah, so the first time we played there, we had to play for ages. And I remember we, you know, broke out anything we knew, playing John Spencer Blues Explosion songs for 10 minutes and stuff, just to, <laughs> you know, make sure we get paid. And then the second time, I think we played it as a three-piece, didn't we, Jamie? We came back as a four-piece and we were we like, did. you're going to love this. It's beautiful. Great show. Guy ran it was lovely and treated us really well. Yeah. Yeah. We all stayed in the hotel afterwards. So we were yeah. looking forward to it. The whole tour, we're like, this is like a break, lads. This isn't a show. This is a holiday. We've set up on the stage and I'm writing out the set list again. Admin, admin to do, you know, probably some important label business, you know. Cahar says, oh, come on now and do the sound check. And I was like, just check my mic for me and you guys play and, you know, I'll finish this and I'll be up in a second. And so Cahar grabs the microphone and starts getting fucking electrocuted. And like really, really badly. And he's like, you know, I'm bouncing across the stage. He fell back onto me. And then I start getting electrocuted. So I'm like, he's being electrocuted. And I'm getting half of what he's got. And I'm getting enough. And I could see his hair sort of sticking out. And I was like, and then my brother took charge of the situation. Rafe, again, no, Rafe being the, the person that he is, he saved Cahar's life by wrenching the microphone stand out of Cahar's dying grip. And then Cahar takes off his hat and he had loads of hair, still does. And it was all standing up on end. Oh, shit, you know, right? And he's like, and he looks at his fingers and his fingertips. And he starts touching his face like, am I still here? You know, it was like really <laughs> dramatic. And it was like, and I start crying because I'm that person because I thought my best friend's dying here, you know, and, but he, he lived and all that trauma. Now, bear in mind the staff of the fucking Pine Lodge are witnessing all of this happened. <laughs> we crowd around each other. Rafe goes, right, get him to the fucking hospital. Let's go. And so they go off, I think. Rafe yeah, and and... there's a nurse there. She says, yeah, he needs to be checked out. I mean, yeah. he, he might seem all right, but I mean, he's, he's had a load of volts pumped for him. We need to do some checks here. They go off. Jamie and I are sitting together quietly. The OG jet plane. You know, what's just happened? We're decompressed. And then... The owner comes over to you, doesn't he, Jamie? And he's like, um, so you're not playing then, lads? <laughs> We're like, not really, no. I don't think we can. Can we? It's not safe. And he's like, we do not just do an acoustic set. <laughs> and we look at each other and think, have we got an hour and a half an acoustic set? Because <laughs> we don't want to let the guy down. And we haven't got an hour and a half acoustic set. So we're just like, nah, sorry, mate. Guess uh, it's not no show tonight. I don't think it's happening. It's not happening. If if Kaka comes back with a full, you know, he's been checked out. I still don't think we're going to be doing this. I think it remains our only cancellation. We played yeah, on the shows. night. Yeah. yeah, we played shows. I remember we were in um, the glamour of on the road. We went to a place called Boston, which happens to be in the north of England, in Lincolnshire. And the only people that were there were the support band. So it was mortifying. And, and the owner. 
and the owner. So he and there counts was... too. And someone playing pool who didn't watch. Yeah. And and there was a big TV and the camera was pointing at the other bar. And so we said, well, we might as well play. So we played and rocked out and everything. And I remember watching this TV and there was two guys at the bar and then they start fighting and they get thrown out. <laughs> so there was actually nobody in the bar at all. Yeah, afterwards, the owner made us sign the guest book. <laughs> we, like, we, like we want to remember it. Oh my We're God. in the guest book in the Boston Arms, if you look. Yeah. God knows who else is there. But... Remember, Carol, after the electrocution for the next wow. four nights, wouldn't go near a the microphone. Fear. Oh, Jesus, I remember in, that. In Dublin, he, in Dublin, he was like standing so far behind his mic that <laughs> I don't think you could hear him. He was shouting from a distance like with a megaphone. He went, I was going, get, get one foot closer, you'll be all right. I remember him saying to me, so I think I'm done, Ferris. I think I'm done. I'm all, come on, kid. Get in the van. You can do it. We had to, we had to get wall, all of our gear back to the mic. We had to get the whole gear checked the next night yeah. and get an electrician in because he wouldn't play in Wheeling because he was scared. Yeah. I mean, rightly so, maybe. But I was like, you know, this won't happen twice. You've been struck by lightning once. It's not going to happen again. How many gigs have we played? It's never happened. But then I wasn't the one getting a full blast. <laughs> Sorry. What was the best moment, lads? Four albums. Don't Try came out in the year of the City of Culture, or Ontario City Culture, 2013, because I think we spoke and we said, we have to do something for this. Uh, Zero for Conduct came out in, was it 2001, Jamie? Zero for Conduct, yeah. Well, by the time, you, I mean, it's crept out a bit, didn't it? Because as Paul said, there was EPs and stuff coming out. So it didn't really have a release date, I don't think, like the re other records did. Yeah, 2001, people were getting it, getting yeah. into it in 2002 yeah. still, weren't they? You know? Yeah. So for, for the recording period yeah. of time, like 12 yeah. years and four records. Um, I, I mean, the achievement of like having made all the Huge. records, um, it, it, it yeah. for me is that show shows wise, I think most memorable one was maybe Reading Festival when we did that. And it was kind of the height of that era of yeah. Brit rock, um, post hardcore. And so we were sandwiched between like Hells for Heroes, Buffy Clyro, and we were playing that tent. And so that was, that was very memorable, but mm. there's all these moments and fragments and stories that are um, hyper memorable. But I think that I remember there's a brilliant photograph of Jamie leaping into the air whenever we were played on Joe Wiley for the first time, whenever we made zero for conduct and i can't remember what song it was that she played jamie maybe you do it was actually that was leaping in the air to steve lamack playing tiny bombs steve lamack yeah i remember it because it was ruth's birthday but yeah, yeah. It was the first time on radio one and it was like wow we made this in a garage and it sounds okay on the radio it's been played on radio one yeah yeah and then a few weeks later joe wiley played mm. summer ends on daytime mm. radio one and i was listening to all the daytime I mean, you imagine daytime radio one then and suddenly our little cranky little record comes on in the middle of it. And I'm like, this is, am I, am I, this is, this isn't happening. <laughs> I'm living in this basement flat in um, Bayswater. And it's like, it's tiny little flat and the radio's on the side and I'm, I'm hearing uh, Summer Ends coming back. And Joe Wiley goes, this is Summer Ends by Jet Plane. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and it sounded okay on the radio. I was like, this sounds okay. This sounds okay. <laughs> That's the stuff of dreams, Jim. Yeah, it was weird. And it was every time we touched the monoculture was like the moment for us of like, um, it was important because, you know, the artistic yeah. intent was there and the sort of maybe the ethos and the sort of mandate and this the kind of punk rock credentials and whatever, who gives a shit. But it was like actually doing all that and getting playlisted on MTV too with a video you made yourself. Yeah, there's a strange little cross into that stuff that we did. 
we dipped into without really calling it that much. It's just again the records people were into, so they, you know, yeah. we didn't have to work that hard. Mm. People came towards us and started playing yeah. stuff on the radio. I know that sounds a bit arrogant, but it's yeah. true. <laughs> and and then the other moments that were really blissful for me, like reflecting back on it, there are these moments of flow. Um, that actually happened quite a lot towards the end of our recording because I moved further and further away from playing guitar um, more into just trying to sing there was just like the band helped me just reach a state where by the third record you know things were done in a single take and things like that and so I can listen back to particular songs and know right well that was all done you know on a single breath whereas everything had been so labored um, at the beginning and so thought over it's, that's what it brought to me and Again, it was just like the, these three people who could play anything, um, who were entirely invested in it. And to feed off that, just to feel that it's a very rare privilege, you know, to stand in front of people who are experts at their craft. So that's that's my overall kind of feeling of those years, both recording and playing life. Yeah. I mean, I'll just never forget Cow's face walking off Reading. After we played, and he had, I can remember him handing his guitar back to be put on the stand, and he just puffed out his cheeks as if to say, I can always remember his face. He's going, What was that? <laughs> it wasn't something that we expected. We'd been liked on the road, but there was uh, the people have really showed up in huge numbers to see us play when we were playing to lots of new people again, and we went down well. And it was like, Wow, that was that was something happened out there. And Kaz's face, as he walked off, was like, oh, I could see he was so happy. <laughs> like you can't ask for more than that, Jimmy. No, that's it. Yeah, yeah. We were happy with the show, but I was I was happy for Car. To finish, can we pick a track from Zero for Conduct to go out on? Can you agree on a track, or will I have to pick a track? Oh. I'm happy for you to pick a track. You pick one. Paul, you can pick one. In that case, I'm going to pick Revolution Rock. Yes, solid gold. If it's okay to get in a couple of plugs, absolutely. Uh, have to plug Cahers Band's new record which is uh, New Pagans. Yeah, New Pagans, new album um, yeah, yeah. out now, Making Circles of Our Own. Um, Absolutely. Which is a fantastic record, and we're really proud of Cahar. We're going to go and see them next week. They're on tour in the UK. Yeah. So be out they're all over the UK for the next week or so, and they're getting great reviews and getting write-ups in The Guardian. Yeah. But Guardian picked them out as the best eight best bands in the country, and that and that's the sort of that's the level that they're at. I believe I believe they are. Yeah, I read that feature last week. Yeah, it was amazing. Mm. That's also out on Big Scary Monsters. It is, and yeah, and just to plug the label as well, and Kev and the team and all the work that they're doing. They've reissued a lot of, I suppose, we're a legacy act at this point, um, but they have a fantastic subscription model for anyone who wants to just hear brand new music. Kev and I came up together. I was doing Small Town America. He's doing Big Scary Monster. So it's the perfect home for Jet Plane Landings music, but there's loads of like brand new bands and like really cool reissues of bands like us. So bsmrocks.com for that. And then on a personal note, just wanted to say thank you to you, Paul, for asking Jamie and I to come on to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's been, it's been nice. You're very welcome. Like for loads of reasons, it's like this all gives like, you know, uh, a chance for me and Jamie and, you know, the rest of the band to rediscover old memories and friendships and, you yeah. know, rekindle things. But also um, the work that you're doing is fabulous. I, I've loved going back through your archive and stuff and been telling lots of people. And I think what you're doing is really important. And I think it speaks exactly to why we wanted to 
manifest our records as records because you know we all belong to this flow of music that came before us and music that gets informed afterwards and it's lovely the way you're taking a snapshot of the you know the era when uh, when's your mexican pets episode you know <laughs> i swear to god where is it let me i i was up in the attic trying to find the cuckoo album yeah. right and i found the mexican pets album and i brought it downstairs with me i swear to oh, god i swear to god that's so weird that's so weird and I think the, you know, again, about your show, and you know this anyway, but the tendrils of Irish music, you know, they sort of run very deep. But there is this era, there's like a really verbose era that a lot of the work that you're covering uh, captures. And uh, most of those people um, are still making music and, and doing those things. So I think that we came out of a really fertile time. And maybe we were releasing our first record at the tail end of that and it's like a, a change that had happened and we were very DIY without major label money. But the heart and the spirit that a lot of those records were made with, like Revelino and Whippin' Boy and Wormhole. and We never really got to you know, play with those bands. They were all packing yeah, up when we came yeah. out. But we were enthralled to them for sure. I heard all their names and you would speak about them. And my partner's from Dublin and she's seen yeah. all. And she's already, she's playing for your uh, podcast there, Paul. She loves them. <laughs> They're all re reminiscent. She's been seeing all these bands. She mentioned Mexican Pets before I came on. She said, talk about Mexican oh. Pets. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what they sound like. I can't. Stigmata Errata. That was such a brilliant song. Uh, they, those guys totally ruled, you know, but again, you know, that's that influence of like uh, DC hardcore percolating yeah. through, you know, it's like you can just see all that just, you know, it's fascinating. You're doing good work there, Paul. You're doing really good work. And these records need to be, you know, there's some records out there that don't get the attention. You know, everyone's heard. Everyone can pick up on the mainline stuff now with the internet. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the underground stuff that, you know, slip through the net or slightly weirder. And, you know, it's great that you're bringing those records to people's attention and people are giving them a spin. Andrew, would you set up Revolution Rock for me? Maybe tell me something about it. Wow. I remember buying Q magazine. They were talking about the clash and they mentioned a song called this is revolution rock and i'd never heard that song and i was thinking about our band and purity and simplicity and about what music meant to me and so i thought we could just throw not in there and it was kind of like a tongue-in-cheek punk rock easter egg and it seemed to flow really really well off the tongue have you ever listened to revolution rock by the clash no no <laughs> it's a cover actually their song's a cover of an old reggae track it's, it's not one of their best <laughs> just put it that way check it out lads it's a it's a it, you probably wouldn't have gone away <laughs> and written an inspired song if you'd listened to theirs so i'm glad you worked on your own one this is not Revolution Rock, which is definitely not their song. So, yeah. Andrew and Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I could talk to you all night. I, I really appreciate you taking the time for me. You too, Paul. Cheers, Paul. Thank you.
again to Andrew Ferris and Jamie Burchill. Jetplane Landings Zero for Conduct is available on beautiful coloured vinyl from Big Scary Monsters, bsmrocks.com or indeed you'll find it on Bandcamp. A vinyl purchase includes a digital link to an additional 19 extra bonus tracks, demos, live versions and more. And Big Scary Monsters are in the process of planning a reissue campaign for the rest of the band's back catalogue. So go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast and you'll find the episode notes and further information about the podcast. If you enjoyed this one, I really hope you'll go back, maybe listen to some of the others, maybe subscribe, like and share. The theme music, it's called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy. It's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next episode, goodbye. <laughs>